Well, thanks for joining us for uh, this portion, the message portion of our of our service uh, today. Uh, we are in an, uh, part eight of a series that uh, had no idea how many parts there were going to be to it, but just continually finding more uh, things that that fall into the category of building a biblical worldview in 2022. We've encouraged over the last number of uh, weeks to to consider um, con- to consider your worldview. Uh, oftentimes we don't actually think about the way we see the world. We, we think about the fact that we do see the world, but not, not how we see it. And uh, realizing that our worldview actually affects our, inter- our, our interactions and our actions in the world, it really, really matters how we see things. And uh, it, affects, it, it affects really everything that goes on. And so we, we've challenged ourselves as Jesus followers to follow him in the way that his worldview was based on the word based on truth. And uh, we've been looking at scripture to see what does scripture say about a number of different topics, not just a verse here and there, kind of the whole of scripture. What does it say about things like humanity? We talked about marriage and we talked about family, uh, God's design for government and, and uh, Christianity and, and sexuality. And uh, last week we looked at the church. How, how do we think Christianly about the church? And so uh, we're going to talk about another uh, topic tonight, a little bit of a difficult one. But before we jump into that, uh, I just I was thinking about this. Do you remember the last time you were on a roller coaster? You know, I was looking at pictures of roller coasters. Like maybe you felt like these guys and thought, man, like this is like it was one of the it's one of the greatest joys. You know, that rush of the roller coaster. But maybe you felt like you know, maybe for you it was like you felt like you were gonna puke. And I and I found a bunch of pictures of people actually puking, and I was like, nah, too too, too soon in the service to show that kind of stuff. But uh, you know, there's this different uh, different response to the roller coaster. And I, I kind of felt like this past week in my life, uh, and, and even talking with a bunch of others, they described the past week as being like a, like a, a roller coaster of life. Things like highs and lows just happening so quickly uh, behind one another. And, and emotionally, it was, it was, there was a lot going on. There's a lot going on in our country at this moment. And, uh, uh, you know, as I, as I was thinking about this this week, there was, a, there was this one point where I woke up and, and it just dawned on me that, you know, we're, as, as much as things are shifting and changing and whatever else, it just this, this thought came that, you know, we may not, I may never be able to return to easy. I thought back to like when life just seemed easier, simpler, and, and it felt like, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not going to be back there soon. And, and then I, I was kind of like depressed and I'm like, you know, I just want to go back to easy. And, 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 then, and then this thought on the inside this, uh, I would say, you know, maybe the voice of Holy Spirit, but this question that asked me, why do I, why do I have that thought? Why do I have this, like this, this assumption that I should be able to go back to easy? That for life to be a little difficult, a little bit painful, that there's some like suffering involved in my life, why, why should I feel like I have the, the right to avoid that? And so tonight is really a message that I'm working my way through that uh, I can't say I've fully processed all this, which is sometimes a little dangerous to start sharing when it's not all fully processed, but here's fair warning. And uh, me working through some of these, some of these thoughts, and, and I'd encourage you to, you know, to think along with me, because tonight I want to talk about the topic of pain and suffering. Do I think Christianly about pain and suffering? That's not an easy topic. Uh, it's definitely not a simple answer. You know, I guess what my hope today is to sort of give us a framework 
that we can build on as far as looking at what Scripture says about, about pain and suffering, that we would give ourselves a lens to, to look through when we experience pain and suffering. And I feel like this is an incredibly important thing because suffering is suffering's actually used as one of the reasons why people will uh, avoid the whole topic of God. Or suffering and, and pain is one of the reasons why people who would have called themselves Christians left faith. Because they couldn't reconcile this pain and suffering topic. And so we're going to take a look at it tonight. What, you know, what, the, what does a biblical worldview of pain and suffering look like? Because there's lots of other worldviews. You know, our culture's got all kinds of worldviews on this, on this topic. From a, a wide range. From things like suffering is, is evil and it should be avoided at all costs. Do whatever you can to avoid suffering. And then we also have, you know, the, the, same, the social justice movement where you say we should do everything possible to reduce the suffering of others. And sometimes it's like it, there's, there's an added suffering to a different group of people in order to reduce suffering in this group of people. Uh, and then, you know, th- in the church, uh, the thoughts that if God allows, or I'd say if God allows suffering, there's this thought that, then he's not good or not, or not powerful. People who say outside, say outside of the church, you know, thinking about God in, the, in that way uh, in relation to suffering. And then for some, it's even this, the existence of God. The existence of God is at question because they're like, you know, the existence of suffering denies or, or prohibits the, in their mindset that, the, that, there, that there's a God that could exist. And so, you know, I, I think about these thoughts and I think, man, you know, to be honest, suffering is like this inevitable, inevitable thing that it's probably really important that we consider, you and myself, that we consider our worldview in order to determine what our actions and interactions will be in light of that, whether we're experiencing it at the moment or not. And like I said, this is part of my process in doing that. You know, many Christians don't actually consider their worldview on, on topics like this, uh, not until they actually find themselves in it. It's like we can talk about suffering in the world. You know, we understand, you know, in foreign countries, well, there's suffering in the world. We have thoughts on that. But what happens when suffering's in your world? What happens when suffering's in my world? How do we see it? How, what is our worldview of that moment? Uh, and how do our actions and interactions, are, are, how are they affected by that? So, you know, the thought that, you know, suffering kind of denies the, the goodness of God, the, the power of God, the, uh, the existence of God, that's, that's not a really a new thought. There's a guy named Epicurus. Uh, Epicurus was a, a Greek philosopher about 300 years before Christ. There's actually still followers of Ep- Epicurus during the time uh, that the New Testament was written. Paul would have debates with the Epicurean uh, philosophers. Epicurus was the guy they followed. And he, he's, he has this, this famous quote, this famous statement. And it says this, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. His argument, well, then he's not powerful. Is he able but not willing, well, then he's malevolent. He's not good. Is he both able and willing? Well, then where comes evil from? And if he's, if he's neither able nor willing, then why call him God? Basically, he really doesn't exist if, if there's, and not exist, he doesn't exist as God if, if he can't deal with this topic of evil. And like we said, for a lot of them, the, the Epicureans was this, this, this uh, getting away from suffering, avoiding suffering at, at all costs. You know, many people who never, ever heard of Epicurus, they never, you know, never met him. Uh, they, they, they have the same questions that he has. 
They have the same thoughts, the same doubts, you know, that God may not be powerful. God may not be good. God may not even exist. And maybe you know someone who has questions like that, especially when they're going through, the, through suffering or through pain. And maybe it's you. Maybe you have those thoughts. Maybe you haven't had permission to put words to them. But hearing that, you're like, yeah, you know what? That, I've been there. That, that's, that's where I find myself sometimes. And so today, I simply want to take a look at what does Scripture say about suffering? What does it say about pain? What's a biblical worldview of uh, pain and suffering? And I encourage you to take notes, uh, things that you know, help you remember, but also to just have something to chat about later on when we're in our groups, uh, maybe watching in a home church or whatever it may be, to, to be able to, to discuss this thing further and allow the Holy Spirit to work this deeper in our hearts. So we're going to jump right, right in with those kind of those three, three thoughts. Number one, suffering does not deny the existence of God. Suffering does not deny the existence of God. So if you end up in conversations with people saying, I can't, I can't believe in a God that, you know, that, that would allow suffering, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great statement to engage in and say, okay, well, well let's, talk, let's talk about that. Does suffering deny the existence of God? Well, we, you know, when I think about us and I, as in North America, where we are, we, we live in a country and a culture that's, uh, that's known and pursued comfort for so long. That it's like comfort has become our God. And that's why, you know, when I woke up that morning and realized, oh, there's some hardship ahead of me, that that hardship felt abnormal or undeserved or whatever. Because comfort has been our norm for, for so long, up until the last, you know, couple of years. You know, we, we, we will worship that God of comfort in, in our whole lives. We will work so hard. We'll enslave ourselves. It's kind of like our offering to the God of comfort in the sense that we pursue comfort at, at whatever cost. You know, buying new vehicles with all the new tricks and toys. Saw somebody the other day, they, uh, their, their vehicle, they just, there's this little GMC light shining on the pavement and they just kick their foot underneath it and all of a sudden the, the back, the, the back thing opens up. They don't even have to talk. They don't, they don't have to touch anything. I'm like, man, like all these crazy inventions in the sake of comfort and ease. Uh, we got things in our house like they just, you talk to a little screen, hey Alexa, and, uh, or hey Siri, and they wake up and they, and you like, turn the light on for me. So I don't have to get up and go over and do it. We, we, we like addicted to comfort. You know, we'll, we'll comply with lies to avoid pain and suffering at any cost. You know, We'll hold on so tightly to the God of comfort, the gods of our own making, like wealth and status and comfort and progress. And we'll hold on to those as if they're, they're, they're more valuable. They become like a God in our lives. You know, as a culture, uh, we've believed for so long that progress is always better. That moving forward, progress is, is always better. Not just that it is better, that it's always better. You know, you, you, see, you see that with people. It's like, it's like so hardwired in us. And then the iPhone 13 came out and then people are like hiding their iPhone 6s. Like, you ask me, hey, what phone you got? Uh, they don't want to say it, right? Because like, <laughs> I don't want to admit that I have an iPhone 6 when there's like the, the iPhone 13 is out because you, we should have progressed to at least further than that. You know, then there's progressive tech. Just, it just continues to get more and more, like I described that vehicle, uh, just, there's just more and more of it. And then progressive views on everything uh, from gender and sexuality. And we talked about that a number of weeks ago. And then, you know, there's even this part of progressive Christianity, that Christianity's got to become uh, more progressive as well. And we think that as it progresses further, it's, it's getting better. And, you know, I, I think we've been 
tempted, conditioned to live our lives uh, and live for the, for the better that's, that seems to be always just around the corner. Because that's the whole myth of progression is that you never arrive. It's always, you know, we're progressing to get to the next spot. And there's all these slogans that are being bandied about by our countries right now. You know, in the States, it's we're going to build back better. You know, and uh, it, here in uh, Ontario, is like we got to protect our progress. These, these things of like, this is where we're heading. We're always in that spot to get, to get better. But, but I, as I thought about it this week, and maybe for you, I wonder, have you ever stopped to think about what we might be missing? What might we, we might be missing out on on this, this, this uh, desperate attempt for progress? I thought about it, man. We have, we have all the knowledge in the world on a device in our pockets these days, and much less of that knowledge in our actual brains. You know how you know that? You start thinking about people's phone numbers. Like I had to call some my, my father-in-law and I had to look up his number because I, it's long since been, you know, unmemorized. Why? Because I don't need it. It's in my pocket. How much, how much knowledge uh, do, do we not have in our brains simply because, oh, it's just easier to have in our pockets. Memorization, people not being able to memorize things like, like they used to. When I think about the Old Testament, they, they'd memorize the whole, not just a chapter, not just a book of the Bible, they'd memorize the first five books of the Bible and it's full of names and whatever, whatever else. Some, some of us are reading through the first uh, five books right now in our reading plan. People are like, oh, boring. Like, I can't, I can't even pronounce half this stuff. And yet they, they've memorized it. My kids memorizing things. My son, Finn, was just talking about memorizing these poems and, and able to, I was like, man, like, I don't know about you, but my memory just doesn't do that anymore. But, but then it's like, it doesn't have to because of progress. But what have we lost? You know, the, the bigger and better, it actually usually also means more expensive. Bigger and better is going to cost you more. And what does that cost? Not just money. It costs all those hours of time, that, uh, which is the truly valuable commodity. It costs you all of that. And where does that come from? Usually at the expense of family and relationships. You know, you got all this, this extra time. The, the truth is you might be able to get overtime at work, but you will never be able to get more time. You might be able to get overtime at work, but you'll never be able to get more time. So what are we losing? What are we really losing when we think, oh, progress is so much better? You know, progressive technology that so much better connects us to one another, and yet we're more disconnected emotionally and relationally with people. We're so much less unified as a result of this technology that was supposed to connect us. What have we lost in this passion for progress. We've got progressive Christianity. It hasn't missed the church. Progressive, and I have to say Christianity with the little, the little fingers. I don't know what you, what you call those. The little, uh, yeah, whatever. The progressive Christianity that has, you know, at, at this point, for some, looks so much more like the world than it looks like Christ. What have we lost in our passion for progress. You know, progressive science that just figures now there's no longer a need for God in our knowledge. We've, we've progressed past that. You know, and as I think about history and, you know, looking back, we see like the roots of this, you know, in the Enlightenment period where people began to look for God and man and, 
instead of God as who he was. We try and find him in nature in different places. But the roots of that are even further back. In first century Rome, we saw where Paul wrote to the Romans and said, hey, they didn't want God in their knowledge. And as we started this series, we also look way back to the garden where humanity began, where they said, yeah, we don't want God in our knowledge. We'll grab the fruit. We'll do it ourselves. What have we lost? What have we lost? You know, the assumption that we don't need God in our knowledge, it actually leaves us with a problem when it comes to this topic of suffering. If God's not in our knowledge, we've got to somehow make sense of suffering. And if we can't make sense of it, well, then we need to get rid of it. And so in culture, we assume that we can fix the world and we, as humanity, can rid the world of suffering. It is like one of the mantras of, of social justice is we got to get rid of suffering and we'll do that. Not realizing we create suffering in a whole other place. And well, now how are we going to get rid of that suffering? And the cycles, it just ever continues. You know, I think the desire for that ridding the world of suffering is in us, but the ability to do it is not. Think about all the suffering that's been caused in the last two years with people trying to rid the world of suffering. If we can just get, if we can just get rid of this virus... How much suffering have we caused as a result of trying to get rid of a virus of suffering? But that's what happens when we take God out of the knowledge. You know, some would use uh, the, the suffering of others as like their kind of their evidence that there's no God. It's like, yeah, well, I can't believe in a God that's, you know, over the planet. Like, have you seen how many people are starving in, you know, in Ethiopia? Have you seen how many... Um, kids have cancer in the cancer wards, and, and they use these, these stories as saying, hey, that suffering, I'm going to use that suffering as my proof that there is no existence of God. And I would just say this, I think we need to caution ourselves when we use someone else's suffering to make that kind of statement. And I would encourage you not to, not to dismiss God on, on the basis of someone else's suffering. And why would I say that? Because as a pastor, I've dealt with lots of people who are suffering. You know what I've heard over and over again from, from, from Christians and from, from also from people who weren't necessarily followers of Christ at the time? That they themselves wouldn't use their suffering as an excuse to dismiss God. Many of them would actually use their suffering as the moment where they reach out to him. It's in those moments where they're like, you know what? God, if you're alive, if you're out there, I, I need help their suffering would actually turn them to the existence of God. You know, the past two years, I even, even chatting with somebody, he was just saying, the past two years have been so terrible, so rough uh, on his life. But he says, do you know what? I, I don't know that I would want those to have disappeared because, because my connection and relationship with God, I've never felt closer to him than I have over this past two years. He says, what I thought mattered before really didn't matter. What matters now is, is this. So many people talking about how at their lowest point is where they found him. That, you know, it was his strength that carried them in their weakness. And they're like, I wouldn't have known how strong he was if it wasn't for those moments of suffering that he carried me through. And so I would encourage us not to dismiss God or the existence of God based on the suffering of others. You know, as I was reading through Deuteronomy actually this morning, if you were, so if you're watching this, it would be on Thursday. We read in Deuteronomy 8. Uh, verses 10 to 11, uh, that Moses was warning the, the children of Israel that they would be tempted to dismiss God in the times of comfort, 
Not in the times of, of suffering. He said this in verse 10, when you've eaten your fill, he says, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. He's saying, hey, once you get into this land of all this amazingness, he's like, make sure you thank God for it. He says, because in verse 11, he says, that's the time to be careful. Be grateful and be careful. He says, beware that in your plenty, you don't forget the Lord your God. You don't dismiss the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, decrees that I'm giving you today. See, when I think about our culture and I think about the worldview of of pain and suffering, but more so the worldview of comfort, that, that, that's preaching of uh, the message of progress to get to bigger and better all the time. I, I think the end result of that message is simply this, the hope that you'll pursue, that you will pursue bigger and better and pursue progress and that you'll end up dismissing God just as they have. Because they don't want God in the knowledge. They don't want, they don't want there to be anyone that keeps God in their knowledge. You know, I think many Christians hit patches of suffering in their lives and, and have never examined this, have never examined their worldview on what, uh, what their approach to suffering is, and they suffer spiritual shipwreck as a result. They don't know how to handle it in the moment, and by then it's too late. You know, I think uh, even last week we had the, the uh, celebration of life service for a dear sister, Karen, um, Karen Borovage, and you know, one of the things that just grabbed me about her life as she dealt uh, with cancer was that, you know, where many people would shake an angry fist at a God they don't even believe in, but they're angry at him anyways. Karen, just in the midst of suffering, would just open her hands in worship to her heavenly father. I was so, you know, moved and inspired by that because she had the proper worldview of what suffering was about. Suffering does not deny the existence of God. Second, suffering does not deny the goodness of God. It doesn't, even though Epicurus was that, had that question, well, if, there's, if, there's, if God could stop suffering, but he doesn't, well, then he must not be good. Well, I know for most of us, the belief is that suffering isn't good. Like, we, none of us would say that suffering is good, especially on the surface level. But that's based on our determination of what's, what's good and what's evil. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> the thought is that if God causes suffering, or if God allows suffering even, well, then he must not be good and he must not be trusted as a result. So the question I think that we owe ourselves to answer is, is it God who's causing the suffering? Is God the cause of the suffering? Uh, and, you know, I think scripture gives us some clear evidence of the causes the, and, and the source of suffering. And, and here's a few to think about, a few to consider. Number one, one of the causes of suffering is your own choices. If we would be honest, there's all different kinds of suffering, right? There's, there's like, there's physical suffering, there's emotional suffering, there's relational suffering, there's, there's just like um, a whole, uh, whole being suffering. Um, but they come from different things, right? So for instance, your own choices, you know, it's like the scripture describes it as the law of sowing and reaping. Uh, Paul wrote to, to the Galatians in Galatians 6 verse 7 and 8, he says, don't be misled. You can't mock the justice of God. You, as he says to the reader, you will always harvest what you plant. Like you're going to reap what you sow. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature, they will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. You know, suffering is a part of that decay and death. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. And so I simply would say this, that sometimes suffering is the harvest of your own decisions. Sometimes suffering is the harvest of your own decisions. I, I remember back uh, when we lived in Dover and had young children. My, I believe it was my daughter, Reese. She was on a chair and 
She would, um, she, you know how the, you know, the freezer, the fridge freezer that has the freezer on the top? She'd grab that handle and she'd swing on the door and then the door would hit the end and then come back and she'd get back on the chair. And uh, we thought, like, Reese, don't do that, right? And, and uh, then, you know, she would, there was one day all of a sudden she does it again. Well, doesn't she slip? Her hands slip off the end and she falls to the ground and she's crying. And of course, in my, you know, poor parenting, it was my first child, poor parenting mode, jump up there and be like, Reese, I told you, so you shouldn't have done, you shouldn't have done that. And Beth, and Beth stops me. And she's like, hey, you don't have to discipline her. Like, this is called natural consequence. She's already hurting. She doesn't need, you know, piling on. And it was that realization that, you know, it, she, the, the suffering that she endured was, was a direct result of her own choices. And we see it all the way. Like, it's not just with kids. There's people, you know, the thought, if you smoke a pack a day, uh, of cigarettes a, uh, a pack a day, and you end up with lung cancer, the, there's, this, there's this correlation to look back at and say, okay, the harvest, the harvest of my choices may have been lung cancer. You know, or like this, the people, <laughs> the, the, you know, the, the dirt bikers like, oh, I thought I could make that jump. And then they end up like this. And it's like, oh, your harvest might be hospitalization uh, as a result of that choice. You know, or, you know, driving here to youth and watching the youth speed by me on the way and pass me a, you know, buck 20. You know, your, your harvest of your choices may be a ticket. And that might be the least of it. Your harvest could be that you hit and kill someone and you'll live the rest of your life with that suffering. The choices that we make, sometimes the harvest of suffering is based on the choices that we make. It's not just bad decisions. I was thinking about this. That sometimes it's the good decisions in our life that result in suffering as well. But they're, they're choices that we made, choices that we made uh, to, to, to take the right um, approach or a good stand on something. For instance, the disciples preaching the gospel ended up arrested in prison. <laughs> Even though they ended up suffering, it was for a good cause. Thinking about peaceful um, uh, demonstrators standing for freedom and then getting beat with batons. Well, their choice was to stand peacefully, but they ended up with suffering. The choices we make can lead to that. You know, the second thing is, it's not just the choices, uh, our own choices. The choices of others around us can also contribute to the harvest of suffering. And simply, it's just by being, simply being close to other people. Solomon actually warned of this in the Proverbs. Proverbs 13, verse 20. He, this, this is like ancient wisdom, and it's still true today. He says this, He who walks with wise men will be wise. He who's close to wise men will end up being wise. But he says, but the companion of fools, it doesn't say he'll become a fool. He says the companion of fools will be destroyed or will suffer harm, is how one of the translations puts it. He who walks, who's too close with the fool, He's going to suffer harm. What, what, what does that mean? Well, when the fool suffers harm, if you're too close, you get hit by the shrapnel. You know, it's like you got in a car with a buddy who had too many to drink. You might not have had any, but you're too close to the fool. And when he gets in the accident, you're too close. You end up being a part of the, uh, the suffering as a result. Or your friends thought, you know, oh, it's fun to pass around, you know, a drink or, or a substance or a video at work. And, and all of a sudden, you know, it was like their, their decisions that you happen to be too close to. And now you're suffering the results of addiction uh, as a result of that. And so sometimes it's like you end up being too close to, to, uh, to, to the fool. But it's not just the fool. Sometimes suffering is a result of being close to a friend. Just too close to a friend or a family member. I say too, but it's maybe not too close. It's just simply being close. Think of this. It's why the death of a friend or a family member hurts. Why? Because you were close to them. And you suffer as a result of that close relationship. You know, when parents get divorced, 
man, it hurts because you were close. And that suffering happens in your life, not because of a choice you made, but because you're close with other people. The betrayal of a friend or a family member, it hurts. Why? Because you were close. You know, David actually writes about this in the Psalms. In Psalm 55, he sings about this thing. He laments to the Lord. Verse 12, he says this, it's not an enemy who taunts me. He says, I could bear that. It's not my foes who so arrogantly insult me. I could have hidden from them. Verse 13, he's like, instead, it's you, my equal, my companion, my close friend. What good fellowship we once enjoyed as we walked together to the house of God. And he goes on to talk about the, the pain of this betrayal. I thought, saw that too. Like, here's the guy who would go to the worship with him in the temple. And I know in our day and age too, it can be a Christian brother or sister <laughs> that you end up, you're close to, that ends up like uh, gutting you with betrayal or whatever it may be. Suffering can end up in our lives simply because we're close to people. So what's the solution? You know, stay away from everyone? You know, don't get close to anyone? No. No, of course not. But sometimes the realization is that suffering that comes into our life has nothing to do with the goodness of God. It, is, it depends and determines on, on the choices that we make or the ones that others have made that we're close to. You know, the other thing is suffering can also be the, the result of the choices that people you don't even know the choices that they make. For instance, you look through history, we see it over and over and over again. You know, the concentration camps full of people experiencing suffering because of the, 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 the tyrannical decisions of Hitler. You know, we see the, the millions of Ukrainians who starved to death because of the choices of Joseph Stalin. The pain and suffering on both sides of, the, uh, uh, of COVID caused by the decisions of leaders and experts. There's, there's people that make decisions and they may not even, they may be doing it with the best intentions even. And yet it can cause suffering in other people. And so there's, there's two ways of, of suffering being like the harvest in our lives. And then third, the earth is broken by sin. Like we live in a broken world. And that oftentimes, it doesn't matter who's, there, nobody's making choices. Like, it's like, you know, with, uh, with um, the floods that were out west earlier this year, the forest fires the year before, the ice storms that, that took out all kinds of um, um, things and caused all kinds of suffering for people. N- nobody chose that. Nobody, I mean, the only choice that was made is that they happened to live in that area. But, but it wasn't the fault of anybody's. But Paul actually describes the, the planet. When he describes it, he writes to, to the Romans, He says in Romans 8, verse 20, he says, Against its will, (laughs) against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, creation looks forward to the day when it's going to join God's children in glorious freedom from what? There's that death and decay again, where the earth will be free of suffering. Verse 22, for we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pain of childbirth right up to the present time. Paul's like, man, the, the whole planet, is, is affected by this thing called sin. Not just people, not just the choices they make, but the whole planet. When these things happen, it's just like, you know, it's almost like the world puking. Uh, just, just sick from the, from the pain and, and the suffering it's been, it's been uh, conditioned with. You know, when Jesus was talking to the disciples, I just, you know, reading through Luke, in Luke chapter 13, it says this, verse 1, about this time Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. And he said, he said to his disciples, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? He's like, hey, do you think it's just their sin? That's the reason why this happened to them? Is that why they suffered? Verse 3, he goes on and says, no, not at all. He says, but guess what? You'll perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And he says in verse 4, and what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? 
Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, he says, and I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. <laughs> Jesus, you know, he's reminding them and, and, and with Paul as well that we live in like a sin-filled planet, a sin-filled world. It's, he's like, is this, is, does it always, do the, do the worst sinners suffer the most? I would say that oftentimes it looks like the opposite. It's like the, the people that we look at sometimes and think, they're the worst, and yet they suffer, seem to suffer the least. But Jesus makes these guys and us aware of this truth that sin, sin says that everyone's going to suffer. Whether in this lifetime or the next, sin is going to make everyone suffer unless they repent. What is he telling them? He's like, fellas, it's not, it's, it's not just like... Um, certain people are specific people. He's like, the cause of suffering is sin. Sin directly and indirectly affects everyone. It is the source of suffering, not God at all. You know, to think about those things when we experience suffering has nothing to do with the goodness of God. It does not deny the goodness of God at all. And then third, suffering does not deny the power of God. What was Epicurus's thought? He's like, well, if God's powerful enough to do it, but he doesn't, or then, you know, he must not be powerful. And, I, you know, I'm even having conversations with people. This has been their hindrance to following Christ. It's like, I can't, I can't believe in a God who allows suffering. I just can't. I can't reconcile that. And what do they end up doing? If, they're, if they call themselves Christians, they end up leaving the God of the Bible, and just kind of creating a new one of their own. Others are like, you know, it's not fair. You know, why, why won't he stop suffering? If it was up to me, I would, stop suff- I would stop the suffering. And the thing is, that statement makes this, this thought that, you know, I'm on some similar level to God. I'm actually above him, because if it was me, I would do better than God. And that's just the issue, that, 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 that's the problem in our world, is we don't want actual God in our knowledge. So then we have to kind of become God as a result. But I don't know if we've considered some of these things. Number one, that God, you know, in Numbers, it says that God's not a man, that he should lie. He is not like us. We might be created in his image, but he is not, uh, has not been um, soiled by the decisions that we've made like we are. You know, First John, 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 the eyewitness of Jesus, he simply says this in First John 1, 5. He says, this is the message we heard from Jesus, and we now declare to you, Jesus, who, who, who is God and saw God personally in heaven, one with him, he says, this God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. None of us can make that claim, that there's no darkness. We, we've talked about that in a couple of weeks ago. He says, but God's not a man like you. You know, he, he, he doesn't lie. He's also, there's no darkness in him. Like he's, he's perfection. It's who he is. And then, you know, Genesis 18, it says that verse 25, it just simply declares that won't the righteous judge of the earth do what's right? He's the righteous judge and he will do what's right. And so when we think about a righteous judge, even if we think about it in earthly, in, in earthly ways, th- consider this thought for a minute. If a, if a just law is unjustly broken, can a just judge unjustly pardon the offender? I'll say that one again. If a, if a just law, a good law, is unjustly broken, can a just judge unjustly pardon that offender? Not really. They can't. Can, you know, in simpler terms, can, 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 he simply, can a just judge simply let a murderer walk free? Simply say, well, huh. You know, I know he killed somebody, but I don't want him to experience suffering in prison, so I'm just going to let him go. 
We've learned before that the wages of sin is death, that the cost of sin is suffering, that sin is the cause and source of suffering. And, and if there's sin, there's going to be suffering. So how can he, can he just simply stop it? And we've talked about this before, but let me remind you and ask you again to consider this for a minute. Because at what level, at what point should God be able to step in and intervene? Should God have stopped Hitler from killing six million Jews? We think about him like, that's six million people. Yeah, you should have stopped him. You know, should God have stopped the bus driver from going over the cliff in Pakistan with a hundred people on board? Well, he thought that, yeah, that's a hundred people. He, he should have stopped, like, think about all of their families and all the suffering that was caused. Yeah, he, he should have stopped that. You know, should God have stopped them from flying into the Twin Towers with 3,000 deaths? Well, yeah, that's 3,000 deaths and all this. He, he should have stopped that. Should God have stopped the man who was driving drunk and killed a family of three on the sidewalk? Well, yeah, that's like, think about the suffering of those family members that are left behind. Yes, he, you know, yeah, maybe he should have stopped that. Should God have stopped the man who abused his wife or abused his child and caused pain and suffering in their life? Should God have stopped that man? Should God have stopped a police officer who beat a protester? Should she say, hey, there's some pain and suffering. Yeah, he should have stopped that. Should God have stopped you the last time you caused pain and suffering in someone's life through a lie, through whatever it may have been? See, if we keep going down the list, we come to a point where there is no choice. There is no purpose. There's no meat. We become robotic. There's no longer any free will, free decision, free choice at all. But the thought is this, to forcefully stop the process would be unjust. It would be unjust. It would make him the tyrant in the sky. And as a result, as a result of his justice, as a result of his justice, there is suffering on the planet. Because he doesn't step in. He doesn't step out of character. He doesn't move from righteous to unrighteous and stop the process. And think about that. Because as I did, I realized, you know, that, that doesn't really sound great for us who may experience suffering. But the other side of the coin is true as well. If you can count on his goodness and his righteousness and his justice to allow suffering, then you can count on the fact that he is just, he is righteous, he is good. And the flip side of that means that's someone you can trust. So why is that important? Why is that important? As we wrap this up tonight, the truth is we will all inevitably face suffering either in this life and if non-repentant, we will face it in eternity. And I think it's short-sighted for us to think that, you know, suffering would, could deny his existence or deny his goodness or deny his power. If suffering des- denies his existence, then who or what are we going to turn to when we face suffering? Because you're going to face it. So if you face suffering and suffering itself denies that there's a God, then what do you do with it when you get there? See, it's actually, it's actually the truth that suffering doesn't deny his existence. It's, it's actually the, the evil is the absence of good, which means that good has to exist in order for evil to exist. It means he's there. It means he's there. You know that for us, it simply means that we would you'd be able to reach out to this God we can trust, but you have to believe that he exists. It's what, it's what the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews eleven six. He says, it's impossible to please God without faith, without trusting in. He says, anyone who wants to come to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. The danger of us, for, you know, in our culture with that worldview is to allow suffering to think that God doesn't exist. And that is where we take the one step away from the one we should be walking towards. 
It's short-sighted. You know, it's short-sighted to think that earthly suffering denies his goodness because, it's, to be honest, it's his goodness that actually caused him to voluntarily come to this planet and take on suffering. My suffering, your suffering, the sin debt, he took that and suffered on a cross for us. Peter, an eyewitness of this, writes about it. He says, Christ suffered for our sins, 1 Peter 3.18. Christ suffered for my sins once and for all time. He never sinned but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. Suffering does not deny his goodness. It's, his goodness actually caused him to suffer. You know, suffering denies his power. We think about that man that's so short-sighted to think, oh, he's not powerful enough to deal with the suffering on the planet. He was way, way bigger than that. His death on the cross and his resurrection defeated the power of sin, of death, and the grave forever permanently, 100% chance we are all going to need a solution to this thing called death. You know, we may survive the suffering, but none of us survive death. And he's like, that's my end goal. That's my end game. I'm going to deal with all of that. You want powerful? <laughs> you, can, you can quibble about the little things of being rescued from this suffering. You know, here's some food to meet that suffering need. Here's some medicine to meet that need. Here's some of this. He's like, man, I'm going to deal with the whole thing. I'm going to deal with the only one that matters. I, I will deal with the salvation of the world. And I just know, you know, maybe just an add-on tidbit for those who are Jesus followers, that when suffering hits, sometimes that, that lie comes in, that, you know, that feeling that suffering denies the love of God. Man, the authors of the New Testament, the Old Testament, they just oft, they so often remind us that suffering does not change God's love for us. Paul writes about in Romans 8, he, he, you know, verse 35, he says, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? And what does he begin to list? Does he mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry, destitute and danger or threatened with death? Like this is all like suffering things. The rest of the scripture goes on with this resounding, no, 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 none of that. Nothing, including suffering, will ever separate us from his love. It's not possible. He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. He is good. He is faithful. He is true. He is powerful. He is trustworthy. But will you trust him? You know, that was written by a man who faced incredible suffering only after he became a follower of Jesus. You know, for so many, they think, oh, if I follow Jesus, my life's going to get better. It's going to, and that, that gospel is garbage. The one that says, oh, you're, you know, you just follow Christ and your life will get better. There's no guarantee that your life is going to, I mean, yes, it's going to get better in the sense you have the hope of eternity. It doesn't, it's not going to necessarily change everything around you. And if suffering is on the table, then it's realizing, man, he hasn't left me. He ha, he, he, the, his love for me hasn't changed. You can trust him. And this is what Paul would tell us. You think about these thoughts. If suffering is the result of my choices, the good news is that he forgives if the suffering is a result of the other people's around me, their choices, the truth is that he's still with me. You know, if the suffering is a result of sin on the planet, the good news is that he is making all things new. That He said, too, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will come and get you, and I'll bring you there. And there is no more suffering. There is no more tears there. And if the, if the suffering is a result of following him, which may very well happen sooner than we think, can I just simply say this? That just means that he's considered you worthy to share in his sufferings. Man, what an incredible thing to experience with our Savior. You know, as I think through the Old Testament, 
It's why all the heroes, as you read through, it's why Joseph endured suffering all the way to the throne in Egypt, because he just simply trusted God, you've got this. All the way through the terrible points ends up on the throne. It's why Paul and Silas, when they were wrongfully imprisoned and they were suffering, they had a song on their tongue. Why? Because they understood they had the proper perspective of suffering. It's like, God hasn't left us. He hasn't abandoned us. We're going to worship him. We're, we're, we're going to honor him because, because of who he is. He's powerful. He's trustworthy. He's good. And he exists. And the best yet, save for last, is why Jesus endured the cross. As Hebrews 12, 2 says, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What? For the joy that was set before him. That joy was the relationship he could have with us, the restoration, the reconciliation of us with our Heavenly Father. He's like, man, I'll endure suffering. You know, suffering is one of those things we don't like, but if it comes your way, I pray that, and if it comes my way, I pray that we have a proper biblical worldview of what it is, that our actions and interactions as a result would be the same type of inspiration like Karen's was to me, that mine might be to the rest of the world. You know, we're going to have to wrestle with suffering at some point, and my question is, do you have a biblical worldview that will carry you through? Do you have a biblical worldview that will carry you through? And last thought, if you're watching, you're not a Jesus follower. You're hearing this. And what we talked about tonight is the reason why you just can't put your trust in God. Can I simply say that his suffering for you on that cross is what's calling out to you today? Simply saying, you know, you... You really can't do life on your own. You keep trying, you'll eventually come to the realization that, yeah, I can't do this. I, I mess it up every single time. And when you realize that awareness, what happens? Guilt tries to come on and, and, and keep you away from God as if he doesn't want you anymore because you've messed it up so bad. But the truth is he wants you more than ever. And he doesn't want you to clean up your life so that you're good with him. He's just saying, listen, if you would just turn to me, you're good with me and, and we'll work on cleaning up your life. Simply today, it's just admitting, Jesus, I need a Savior. And I believe that you exist and that you are that Savior. And God, I ask that you would rescue me. I ask that you would rescue me. Rescue me from who I've become, who I've, my, the life that I've lived, and ultimately rescue me from eternal suffering. I promise you, he will. So as we talk about some of this stuff, again, as always, if you come to a different conclusion or different thoughts, please email me. I'd love to hear scripture, not opinion, just scripture it says, hey, you know, here, here, here's a biblical worldview of suffering. Because I, as much as I want to share this, like I said, I'm working through this myself. I would love to have that same, you know, growth in that same area. So thank you for, I don't know, walking through this with me tonight. Appreciate you taking some time to, to, to listen in and to, to wrestle with it. And I encourage you, you know, to take some time to ask some of these questions uh, that we have here up on the screen with a few other people. Uh, well, number one, what jumped out at you from today's talk? Second, do you know people who've, who've used the Epicurean argument against suffering or against the existence and power and goodness of God? Do you know people who've used suffering for, and, and described it in those ways? And how those, you know, how those conversations go? And then third, have pain and suffering affected your life? How so? Closer to God, further away? How's it affected you? And then finally, have you considered your worldview on this topic? And if not, will you? Can we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that it reveals things in our hearts and lives, that it equips us, teaches us to be what's right, that it is your very breath, your truth, that it's living and powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts right to what's going on in our hearts. Thank you for doing that in my life this week. Thank you for preparing me for what you already know is down the road.
God, I trust that you're already there, that you will guide the steps of each of us on our journey to that point. May we honor you along the way. God, may we shine for you. May people see your goodness through our lives. Lord, we pray for our country and what's happening in our, in our world, but we believe that you've put us here to shine in this day and this time. May you be glorified. <laughs> and may people be reconciled to you as a result. Love you. I'm just so grateful that you love me first. I ask this in your name. Amen.